Well, I got a privilege to share with you one of the young men that I love dearly and have been involved with for a long time. And we thought we'd sneak him up here for several reasons. Um, number one, we want him to preach. But Travis has a unique gift uh, God has blessed him with to be able to climb trees. Every boy's dream. <laughs> but he climbs trees and cuts them down. He's very, very good at that. And we had some trees that were overhanging the CE building across the street that None of us were brave enough to go up and try to cut. So we said, hey, Trav, why don't you come down, cut trees, and preach for us? And uh, so yesterday he came, and Lloyd and Connor and uh, um, Lyman, uh, Lyman was there. Uh, who else was there? A bunch of other guys were there. And they come and got those trees off our roof yesterday. So Travis, thank you for coming and doing that. You are very gifted. If you've never seen some guy go up on ropes and just throw himself around and pull around on ropes and cut trees, and it's amazing to watch. So... Um, anyway, he's very gifted. God has given him that talent, and he uses that as kind of a tent-making um, to help fund his ministry. He's at CBC, uh, Community Bible Church, which is underwater from the earthquake, but uh, he serves there as one of the pastors on staff there part-time and uh, teaches home groups, and uh, he graduated from Cornerstone Seminary. Uh, we've just known each other for a long time. His bride worked for Gina and I in, the, in our summer ministries doing vacation Bible schools. We used to do anywhere from five to nine vacation Bible schools a summer out in the rural areas in Nevada and California and Oregon. And, and Lori would work with us. And then she went down to Master's College. And I remember the day she called me. She goes, Scott, I met someone. And I go, oh, okay, who is he? And I'm thinking I got to put this guy and get rid of him because Lori was just, you know, she was like a daughter to us. And uh, he, he started to explain, she started to explain Travis to me. And I said, Lori, if he's anything, what you said, marry him. And uh, uh, I remember one day she was wrestling with it and she began to tell me all these things. And I said, Lori, look, if you don't marry him, I'm going <laughs> to. He's a great guy. So I had the privilege and Travis told me this morning at breakfast that I married him 15 years ago. I'm getting really old, or you're getting older, or something. He is not a young man anymore. He is a seasoned man in the, in the faith and in the ministry. So Travis, we've come up and preach God's word to us. We long to hear what God's put on your heart. Well, Scott just answered my question. I've been wondering, how, how much longer do I get to hear the young man thing? Because I'm just turned 40 this year, and I was thinking, man, that's like, well, I guess it's over with. He just said, I'm not a young man anymore. <laughs> Rats. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, that climbing trees lets you know that you are 40. <laughs> uh, that and uh, afflictions of life, some of which we're going to look at this morning at a 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The title of this message is The Father's Plan for Allowing Suffering in His Children. The Father's plan for allowing suffering in His children. Some of you, perhaps, this will be helpful and new information. Some of you, it's a rehearsal of things that are not only in your mind, in your soul, your spirit, because you've walked it through and you need the reminder. And some of you are maybe only in the head, and haven't experienced the deep afflictions that can come, not only as a human being, but also as a believer. And you will need these to be moved beyond your head and into your heart and life. So I pray that the Spirit of God will minister to all of us, myself included, because uh, I seem to not get out of this situation myself and am on this ongoing train ride of afflictions, mild compared to some, but enough for me to call them afflictions. So praise God for that, because in our weakness, as 2 Corinthians 12, Paul alludes to, and with our weakness, the Spirit of God displays His great power in us. And we're going to look at that this morning as well. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. The word affliction which is repeatedly used in 2 Corinthians 1, literally means a pressing in. It's pressure. It's, it refers to circumstances of life that begin to squeeze on us. And it can be a dual nature. It can be small, but never-ending almost, which begins to wear and wear and wear. It's just, that's the squeeze. Or it can be horrendous squeezing, intense pressure. Or it can be intense pressure for a long time. So it can be used in a number of ways. And we all experience this at different times and in varying degrees. It's, part of it's just what it means to live under the curse. With all the gamut that that can bring on whether you live in a third world country, and poverty never ends. It's just an ongoing squeeze. Or whether you are in God's providence, raised in a family that is racked with illnesses, and it's just one after another. Or maybe it's death of loved ones. It cycles through again and again. Or maybe it's loss of job. Maybe it's a time period you live in where finances are tough. Who knows? It's all of us. But then there's an added dimension, and Paul uses another word, which I think is interchangeable here, and that is suffering. Suffering. So afflictions, suffering, and we're going to look at that a little later to unpack it a little bit. But inevitably, the question arises when suffering or afflictions squeeze on us long enough, no matter where we are, as an unbeliever, it's, it's a given, but as a believer, and I say this, text-driven, as a believer, no matter how mature you are spiritually, given enough time under the gun, and the question arises, why? Why are these things happening? Why does God allow suffering in His children? And the reason I say that is linked to Job, who the text itself says there was none like him on the planet, a blameless and upright man. And as you journey through the book, he asks, why? So, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, young person, it's easy in the, youth, in the youth to not have a category for this yet, but it will come. So gain all the theology now, and someday God will give you a laboratory to test it in. But it will come. So I think we can learn some lessons from Paul's initial remarks in the second letter to the Corinthians. The second letter we have, he wrote others, but it's the second one that we have here in our Bible in verses 3 through 11 Lessons, five lessons from Paul's life and his suffering for the Father's plan for allowing suffering 
and his children. And so in our English Bible, we basically have two paragraphs here. Where the first paragraph is just a general overview of God's purpose in suffering. But then Paul doesn't leave it there. Because he wants to give us an illustration of what it looks like played out in his life. And I think it's a crucial one. Crucial for us. And it's crucial for the flow of the text of one of the main lessons of what suffering is about. And that is that it's for others as well. Your suffering is for others as well. So put those two thoughts together. We're going to look at it. Let's see what the Spirit of God has us for us to glean from this text. First of all, lesson number one. God's design of suffering is to produce worship from His people. God's design, first of all, is to produce worship from His people. That is totally counterintuitive to our thinking. But notice how Paul bookends this passage, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising Him. Now look at verse 12 or 11. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So the first lesson in why God allows suffering is to produce worship in His children. It is characteristic in unbelievers to do what when affliction comes crashing in? To curse God. It's the natural way to respond to it. God, how could you let this happen? I hate you. That's what happens. Or maybe they don't say that, but all you have to do is make a statement like, God is sovereign over this. He allowed this earthquake to happen. He knew it was going to happen. And he allowed it to happen. And he has glorious purposes to work out from it. How could a God like that do that? So there's the cursing. But this stems from a heart that does not see God accurately. Satan has sabotaged the human race in our thinking and our perception of God. Because when we're born, we don't see God as perfectly, intrinsically good. We don't see him as the perfect, loving father that he is. Because Satan lies to us. So we see him as bad guy. You know the Psalms are filled with this statement. The Lord is good. He's good. He cannot be other. He is good. But Satan says he's bad. That's why we run from him. He's bad. His law is bad. Right? So that's the natural man, the lost man who doesn't know God anymore. But... The sad thing is, even as believers, we can struggle with this from time to time. Can't we? Be honest. We can struggle with this. And we start to listen to the lies. For example, I assume she's a believer. But when God allowed intense afflictions to visit Job, his wife cracked under the weight of it. And they were horrendously intense. Even in the beginning, who cares about his wealth? He just got news that all 10 of his kids and their spouses got killed by a tornado. All of them were like empty. And his wife says what? Curse God. But... Job, on the other hand, in his initial response, does want. It's the text says he falls, Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, you go look at it. He falls to the ground and he worships God. That's our first lesson. And he says, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, bless his name. 
Or, in our passage, look at 2 Corinthians 2. Verse 12, when I came to Troas, here's another example of Paul's suffering to preach the gospel of Christ, even though, don't miss this, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, there was not one thing that made Paul's heart giddy up and go more than that. He's a missionary. Even though that was the case, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Notice this. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Or Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Or James 1.2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of all sorts. So there's the Christian's distinct response to afflictions and suffering. It's a high and lofty call that, as we're going to look at, you are only going to get there by no other means than supernatural power given to you, especially when it gets really hot. So, these, however, these statements are easy to rattle off in plush times, when our banks are, are good and fat, when all our kids are healthy, and we're enjoying sports and pleasure, and we got nice vacations, and it's been like that for a while. But the happy-go-lucky songs that we rattle off, they don't hold up when the bottom falls out unless these truths are more than those happy-lucky songs and they're united by one very simple word, belief. We just sang about it. We believe these truths. We believe in most Theologically precise and important rock-solid truths. Like one of them that we just looked at in that song, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to take us to that truth in this text. We believe in these things. And it's when that is united that we'll be able to worship. And I have noticed that in my life, when I am not worshiping and suffering, it is a result of one thing, and it's not my seminary or lack thereof. It's belief or unbelief. It's a crisis in my heart that's struggling. It's the old whisper from the devil. It's the darts of the enemy and what shield of faith is not there to handle them. So, and this can even be cyclical. You know, it's funny. A trial comes in and my theology's in place. I got it. No, God, you're going to come through. I just need to trust you. You're good. You got this for my good. You're going to be glorified through this. Man, I'm living Romans 8, 28. I'm spouting it off. I'm there. Next day, pfft. Oh, God, what are you doing? What are you, doing? you ever been there? Next day, no, I believe your promises. Next day, pfft, down again. Ah, this is where the war is. It's faith or not. Do I believe him or not? However, if a major purpose of afflictions is to produce worship, it's fair to ask, and you should ask, how do I get there? How do I get there? And Paul helps us by aligning our thinking on this subject as we go through the text. So look at lesson number two. Lesson number one, God's design for suffering is to produce worship from his people. But lesson number two, suffering produces intimacy with God. Notice who Paul addresses in verses three and four. The Father. It's the Father. Front and center. 
I see three things that are true about our Heavenly Father in the midst of suffering, and these are so important. And this is the connecting point with belief. How you view God as Father is so important. It's crucial to how you're going to be able to respond in suffering. And it needs to wipe out all the lies of Satan. And he's going to just lie and poison your thinking on this issue. But number one, he is tenderly compassionate in his relationship to his children. He's tenderly compassionate in relation to his children. That is, he is the father of mercies. That's him. This is God Almighty who just wills, as Revelation 4 says, he wills and the creation is. It's the son who speaks The Father just wills it so. But He's tender and compassionate to you. Number two, He is sovereignly powerful and He's able to comfort His children. He is the God of all comfort. Oh, this is important. Because when suffering comes, you're like a little baby. You're like a four-year-old whose skin is knees crying, coming up to daddy. Daddy, daddy, I'm hurting. That's all you got. And he is the God of all comfort. That's your father. Number three, he comforts us in every single affliction. Every single one. That is the father to you. Do you think like that of him? I don't. So many times I struggle at this point, all my little stuff, even my struggle with how to deal with one of my children in a manner that's consistent with his nature instead of being fleshly and irritable. Even those little things, he cares about them. Think about this. When my children are suffering, when they hurt, they enter into a new realm with me because it taps into, as their father, it taps into my compassion. And I, and I kneel down with them and I gather him up in my arms and I comfort them and I kiss their wounds and I hug on them and just love on them. If that's me, messed up, imperfect dad, if God calls himself father to us, how much more so is that true? with you and your suffering. We need to have a right view of our Father. He's compassionate toward His children. He's not distant from us. That's the the thinking of an unbeliever. God is distant. He's just distant. I'm not talking to Him. No! That's not Him. The text says He's here and He cares. So number three, and this is so important, God wants to comfort us because he's father. But number three, our suffering is not in isolation. God has never designed that it just be in isolation. Oh, there's a component, and Paul's going to tell us about that later. There's a component that's like front and center, I'm doing business with you. Travis, but it's not just that. It is intentionally for others as well. Look at verse 4. God is the Father who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Look at verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. 
And then verse 11, we've already looked at it. You also must help us in prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf. See, you're with us for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So our suffering is not in isolation, but it's intentionally for others as well as we receive comfort from the Father. And we have to. We have got to go through this process. It's not just safe suffering to increase our endurance, which that is part of it. James says that. But it's not just that. It's so that in our intimacy with the Father, as we go to Him like a little kid, that's all we are, kids, as we go to Him like that, in weakness, in humility, in simplicity, in being stripped of all the things that we thought we were big in, and we come to him, and then he comforts us. He ministers grace to us. He helps us. He sustains us. And on the other side of that, we can go to our brother or our sister, because God has now put something new in us that we didn't have before. First of all, we endured suffering. That does something to us. And able to look out. Now we're looking at others. Who's suffering? Because I know what it's like. I've been there. And second of all, God comforted me. And you need to go to somebody. And with the comfort that he has given you, comfort them and say, listen, you're going to get on the other side of this. Let's turn to the Lord together. And let's walk through this together. For anything, anything that he brings into your life, But it's the wrestling process that you went through. It's not just I got an answer, I plugged it into the formula and came out with an equal sign. It's the wrestling that you go through that others are able to tap into and say, yeah, you really do know. You know what it's like to wrestle through this. Now I can make the next step. So you're both an example to others as well as an encouragement And we can say with Paul, because we've been there, our hope for you is unshaken. Because I went through it, and I'm going to look you straight in the face and say, oh no, he has the power to get you through it. Now that's not just a cliche. You know what it means to have God infuse you with power when you're just utterly weak to get you through something and be able to look somebody in the face and say, no. He can do this, but you're going to have to unite it with faith. That's the only way he operates. You trust him here, and he will strengthen you through it. And that can be a source of comfort. But lesson number four, and here is the hinge point for all of this for us. Our sufferings are firmly and certainly rooted in our union with Christ. And this is huge. From two different angles. Our sufferings are firmly and certainly rooted in our union with Christ. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly, notice that word, abundantly in just sufferings? No, that's not what Paul says. In Christ's sufferings. So, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Man, this is an important verse. This verse places the emphasis upon Christ as the central reason and link to our comfort from the Father. Don't miss that. He's both the reason and link to our comfort from the Father. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 8. Everything in the life of the believer flows from the Father through Christ. This is the order. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Everything funnels from the Father through the Son. So as Christ suffered in the flesh, so shall we. We already looked at it, or I quoted it to you. Colossians 1.24, Paul says this, I am filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, you're probably familiar with this, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or 1 Peter 4.1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Or if you need another one, Philippians 1, 20 through 22. But for time's sake, we won't go there. Just as certainly as our union with Christ adds suffering, not only in 2 Corinthians 1, but those other texts to our lives, so our union with Christ secures the intense and faithful love and comfort of the Father for us. What can separate us from the love of God? Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, so here's the connection, graciously give us all things? Now that's a verse that I got a, a decision to make with. And I'm either going to unite that with believing him at that promise or not. But that's the promise. So because of Jesus, because of everything, if you look back at Romans, everything that 3 through 5 talks about, that Jesus accomplished in his work on the cross and his resurrection, everything he did, he secured everything in Romans 8 for us. And that's what Paul's living out in 2 Corinthians 1. So be comforted. Jesus has secured this kind of relationship with your Father. God's design of suffering is to produce worship from His people, produce intimacy with God. Our suffering is not in isolation, but intentionally for others as well. Our sufferings are firmly and certainly rooted in our union with Christ. And lesson number five, God is over our suffering, all of our suffering, to work His good purposes. What's the classic verse for this? Somebody tell me. That's it, right? Anybody want to quote it loud? Come on, somebody got a loud voice. That's right. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It would not surprise me if Romans 8, particularly verse 28, was informed by Paul's thinking here. Many believe that Romans was written on Paul's third missionary journey from Corinth. But I want you to see, and this is striking, you see it a little better in the original language but I'll help it flesh out here to you, but that Romans 8, 28, particularly in this, these verses, the similarities are remarkable. In verse 8, 28, all things work together. There's a very similar word here that's not translated in the ESV well, but New American Standard says works together. And the NIV translates it, which produces in you. It's a power working. God is doing that. Look at verse, where is it? Verse 6. Which you, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings, which God produces in you. He works in you. 
But then the same word used for know is used in this passage. Verse 7, our hope for you is shake, not shaken, for we know this, that as you share in their sufferings. We know these things. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, we know all things work together for good. And then all things is seen here. Whether we're afflicted or comforted in anything, God is doing this. He's over all these things to work his good purposes in us. It's amazing how crystal clear this, this, this idea, this truth that is kind of brushed through here and very explicit in Romans 8 can be in our thinking but how it just fades in suffering. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever just lost sight of that? Or let me get really honest with you. Have you ever almost totally lost sight of that? Because Paul did. Job did. Job talks in Job 1 in the first chapters the way we should anytime. And he's at extremely intense suffering. But the thing went on so long that Job says things eventually you go, whoa. And from the, the couch, we can play quarterback easily. But man, things can get so long, so hot, so deep, so painful that you utter words of despair. That's why I'm so thankful that after John Piper wrote Desiring God, sometimes he, he, sometime later he wrote a book called When I Don't Desire God. And he speaks out of years of pastoral experience and Biblical understanding that, men sometimes you can hit the bottom. But the same God who is your father and comforts you is over that as well. And he holds Peter. Jesus prayed for Peter so that it wouldn't crush him. And he wouldn't go all the way to the bottom. And you won't either if you're his child. But I want you to look because Paul gives us a very real life illustration of what it means to suffer in verses 8 and 9. And this is the backdrop of what led into Paul talking about suffering. And he wants to be a very transparent pastor and say, let me tell you where I was. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I'm not just telling you theology in a classroom. That's what Paul's saying. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul is saying more literally, beyond measure, that is, to the extreme. So throw it out there as far as you can get it. Above our ability, we were burdened so that we despaired. That is, we came utterly to a loss, even of life. So for Paul, the center sunk. There's a word for this. It's called depression. It's when the center sinks and the, it's below the peripheral. It's the core of you and it just goes down. And you feel like, ah, I, I can't talk. I can't get up. And maybe you haven't experienced that. Maybe some of you have. But the Apostle Paul, the great giant, 
That's where I was. Some think this was during the riot at Ephesus. And they're chanting back and forth to the great God, the great goddess. Just back and forth in the cacophony of this sound. Just the roar of a mob just pounding. I mean, he'd been through so much physical suffering. It's not new to him. But sometimes under the weight, I mean, I know what it's like to be in my own home when there's too much chaos with all our little ones and, and there's just a panic going on. And it just grinds on you. But that's not what this is. It's just going on and on and on. And it gets into him. And somewhere, if that's the case, if that's the scenario he's talking about, he sinks. And he's just wanting to give up. And he's despairing. And he's just like, God, I can't take it anymore. And somewhere in that, he feels like he's disconnected maybe. I don't know, I'm just guessing. I know how it goes in my own life. But he doesn't just leave it there because that's the internal side. So he feels like I'm going to die or I want to die. You ever felt like, man, I just want to die. I said that. But it, wasn't, it didn't end there. Somewhere in this, Paul realized, no, I am going to die. This is it. Because he says, we had the death sentence. This was it. No deliverance. But it's in the midst of this that God comforted Paul. And the text says it's by making him not rely on himself. How far does God have to go with us to get us here? Verse 9 says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is the ultimate purpose for our suffering. To drive us to dependence upon Him. And when we get here, we enter a very unique realm of worship. Oh, it is extremely unique. It's at a place that we're not at normally because there's nothing left but the sheer, raw power of God. I just have to say this. I just thought of this a while ago. The earthquake that happened up north, anytime there's a major earthquake, it is raw power being unleashed at just phenomenal amounts. You think about the one in 89, you think about the tsunami that hit Japan. In Exodus 19, when God comes and specifically gives His presence closer, there's all kinds of activity, but one of them is earthquake. And throughout history they've gone, and you get to the book of Revelation, there's just earthquakes. In judgment, there's earthquakes rattling forth from heaven. And we cannot miss this. God is displaying glory in this powerful moment. And that glory is always tapped into his power. And that's where Paul turns here. It's to power outside of himself, God's power. But notice specifically, and man, this is important for us. What does he say? Not on ourselves, but on God who does what? Raises the dead. What's the term for that? Resurrection. That's the power that God, who in his fatherly mercy and comfort, walked Paul through and then very point-oriented directed his thoughts to. The resurrection. The resurrection. What is it in Romans 1.4 that declared the Son of God with power? The resurrection. How much do we think about the resurrection of Christ and how it applies to us? That's the question. When we experience utter powerlessness, 
In our circumstances, we are free to focus on God's power. And specifically, resurrection power. There's a book that I read uh, by Byron Yon called uh, What Every Man Wishes His Father Had Told Him. It's got to be read that. It's a great book. Love that book. But one thing he talks about in the very early chapters, he talks about his wife um, went through birth to two to twins. They're both dead. And he says, what do you tell her in that moment to comfort her? I didn't have anything to say. Except I pointed to an empty tomb that blew death wide open. And I, when I read it, I said, yes, that is comfort. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man. Sometimes when I get deep down at the bottom and I could, when I finally get to that place, yes, that is power. Because no matter where you are and how far down you're going, that's the deliverance is in the resurrection of Christ. Remember how verse 5 tied everything in this process to our union with Christ? In Romans 6, 4, we read this. That our union with Christ is so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that power, we too might walk in newness of life. But that verse is not just for our sanctification, though it's in the context of that. Because the next verse says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see what he's saying? The Father uses afflictions to drive out our self-reliance so that he can give us something bigger and better to place our confidence in. That's what he does. Resurrection power. The very power that it takes to bring about the resurrection. That is his power available to us. Have you ever thought, just for a moment, contemplate how much power did it take to pull off the resurrection? Have you ever thought about that? Because that is not explosion power. You think about an atomic Warhead going off that causes this just phenomenal amount of release of energy that destroys. That's the power that we know of, that we can tap into. It's God's power still. But we tap into it, it blows things to bits. But when God applies this kind of power, it pulls all of those pieces back together. What about all those people that are vaporized? In Japan, God is going to apply his power to bring those people's bodies back together. That is power. And Paul says, we have that power available to us. You know why we don't have it in our lives? That first point way back at the beginning of the sermon was tied to one word. What is it? That's it. Belief, that's what God shows us in our afflictions eventually. I just read this week in Luke when Jesus and the disciples are in the storm and it's going on chaos. And what does he challenge them with? Where's your faith? And I just read about David running and running and running and running when Saul was after him, after his life. And then the greater David, Jesus, how many times did he have the Pharisees wanted to kill him? He was never scared and he never ran because he believed in God's power. It's amazing. But notice, and we're almost done, how confident Paul is in verse 10. Three times he says, God is able to deliver. God is able to deliver. And this is where I lose it in my suffering. As I just give up and say, God, you're not going to deliver. He said, I got cancer. What if he doesn't heal me? Oh, yeah, he's going to deliver. 
That's what this is about. That's what the resurrection is about. Of course he's going to deliver us. Man, if we could just keep this in our thinking. That's what distinguishes us and the saints we live about in the past who live with power because they just kept this right there in their thinking and they believed these promises from God's power. Go to second, not now, but go there, Second Timothy 4, verses 15. The, Paul's at the end of his life. All have left me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me in his imprisonment. And then he points to the resurrection again. Or go 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 5, chapter 8. Look there, not now. We don't have time, but go and watch. And then read the book of 2 Corinthians and notice from verses 8 and 9, Paul never looks the same again as he did as he's looking back at his struggle there. It's all about glory and joy in the midst of suffering. And he went through a lot and he talks about it in the book. But then it all hinges on what he said in verse 5 with his union with Christ. In chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 6, he unfolds the glory of Christ in the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the, that's the stuff that made Paul sore. So that's where we have to go. It's these five lessons, though, that God wants to work out in our suffering. Produce worship from his people. Intimacy with God. Our suffering is for others. And everything is rooted in Christ. And God is over all of this for his good purposes. And those good purposes is a life of Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created for good works that take the power of the resurrection to carry out. So today, today believe again. Or today, believe for the first time. Set your eyes on Christ for everything he is for you in his work on the cross. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how many times, how many times you draw us to yourself and you bring us back to your book again and you remind us of these truths and this is how you comfort us. And how many times have you delivered us? And how many times have you rescued our souls from such horrific pain and given us joy in the midst of our suffering? And today, undoubtedly, Holy Spirit, somebody here is suffering intensely and ready to throw the towel in. Will you minister your word to them and prepare us, Lord, for the next round that you allow in our lives? Oh, God. Give us grace. We need your grace to believe these promises again and again and again. Thank you for being our Father. And thank you, Jesus, our King, and the one who went before us. Bless your people. Amen.